Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living a Life Through Books, the podcast about everything bookish. I'm your host, Dr. Shanaz Ahmed, and today is Book Club. Before I bring up our conversation, I wanted to say that your support of my podcast means a lot to me. The easiest way is to buy me a coffee. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash LLTB podcast. Every coffee you buy me helps keep me alert and this podcast going. I'll add the link in the show notes and I thank you. So today's book is My Real Name is Hana by Tara Lynn Massey. And in this book club session, as a surprise, I had the author join us. She joined us towards the latter part of our discussion. One more thing. I want to talk a bit about a great audiobook app, Libro.fm, lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, you know the name, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of this podcast can get two books for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that is L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code L-L-T-B podcast. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'll add the link in the show notes. And now, sit back, relax, and enjoy our discussion of My Real Name is Hana by Tara Lynn Massey. Welcome to Book Club. All right, everybody, let's start Book Club. Today's book is My Real Name is Hana by the author Tara Lynn Massey. So there you have it. You guys know what my first question is. What are your first thoughts? I'm happy to go first. I mean, knowing that it was a YA historical fiction, I feel like that was exactly what I expected for a YA historical fiction in the sense of like storyline and themes and that kind of stuff. I will say that I do think that it is different than other World War II historic fictions that I've read, whether they be adult or YA, just in the sense of like the geographic setting and where the storyline is taking place. Because most of the stories that you get from World War II are like England, France, Germany, occasionally Poland, but you don't usually get Ukraine. So I thought it was unique perspective from the standpoint of this historical fiction. I agree. I I enjoyed it. It was a quick read. Um, I was I was kind of surprised that wait we were already at the end, like <laughs> only not so many pages later. But I enjoyed the characters and in the story. It was very sad, and of course you could feel that in the in the characters and and their development in the storyline. So I, I I enjoyed it. So for me, I didn't know it was YA, and that changed a lot. Yeah, I did not know it was YA. That changed a lot because when I started off, oh, historic fiction, World War II. Okay, great. I'm dealing, I'm dealing with some great brutality. It's going to be bad. 
and it's going to be really harsh punches and I'm waiting. This is sad. Yeah, this is sad. Why is this so dilute? This is World War II. And it took me the end to realize, wait a minute, is this written for YA or what? Is this? That was my first thought because I didn't know, you know, so. um, But how was I supposed to know if I didn't read the clips or read anything? I would just say, like, I think that the fact that I mean, we all know sitting here, I mean, none of us are Holocaust deniers, so we all know what happened during World War II and are very familiar with the atrocities. So I think that the scratching of the surface of the atrocities in the book is, I would say, the number one indicator that it was YA. Like they were broaching this topic, but they weren't getting into some of the more, not that these aren't terrible things that happened, but like some of the more graphically violent things that occurred, which I think can be hard for kids to consume and process and understand, especially like, I think this is really great for the context of a classroom, especially for middle school. And, you know, I would say sixth grade and up, but I think outside of high school, it would be really hard for most students to process some of the more violent atrocities that are written about in more adult novels of this time period. I think that makes sense. And and one of the things that I noticed though is that it, it wasn't completely absent of gruesomeness. I remember one of the scenes in like the, in the cave where, you know, they're so vitamin deficient at that point that people's teeth are falling out, right? And so like that was kind of striking. <laughs> But yeah, no, I I agree. And the only thing that kind of clued me in, um, which I didn't really notice until after I had read it anyway, was the fact that like the cover has the the little girl sitting on it. And so that just made me think, well, this little girl is the the focus of of this story. I read the end where she talked about this was only 5% of people in that location survived. And, you know, when I read that, I thought to myself, wow, you know, it's, you focused on the hope, which is good, fine. I mean, you focused on the hope, you focused on the people who made it out, which was only 5%. It almost feels like this is the only family who made it out. That's scary. I mean, I'm not, I'm sure other few others made it out, but that devastation doesn't show up in the book, except when I, after, after the fact. So, but you're right, Erin. I mean, it's written for that high school level, you know, where they can process it. Because otherwise, I mean, if you throw them like the nightingale or something, it's a lot more intense, I think, or even the lilac girls. I think all of that is true. And I think that's where, you know, when I'm reading this, and I'm comparing it to the nightingale or the lilac girls is when I was like, well, really? Yeah, you're really vitamin deficient, but you're hidden, and you're surviving. You're barely surviving, but it's not like every day someone's knocking on your door. That's where I came from. But so what is the main theme of this book? What was the message? What's the theme? I think that it's very similar to the diary of Anne Frank, to be honest. it's a di- I think it's a different geographic location than Anne Frank, but it's a lot of the same themes. Like there were people who helped Anne Frank. There are people who help Hannah's family uh, when they're living first in the cabins and then in the cave. And so I think that's one of the themes is that just because you're stuck in a society where atrocities are happening, that it is the right thing to do. It's a hard thing to do. 
and it's self-sacrifice, but it's the right thing to do to help people uh, in different ways that are in that, you know, that are being oppressed, that are being, I mean, really more than oppressed in the situation, they are being killed. So I think that's one theme is helping. I think another theme is just like surviving and doing what it takes to survive, which is also, I think, similar to the Anne Frank diary. I agree. I have nothing else to add about that, really. (laughs) You know, I was thinking in terms in this book about how they're just there. They didn't move into the forest for a while. It was a while. And then they're like, um, we should, because at some point someone's going to, it's getting to the point where people are telling on others for whatever perks that the Nazis are giving them. And I just, it was frustrating for me that they moved finally, they did move finally, but it was just kind of like, you guys are not taking it seriously. This book is so chill, you know, nothing's happening. You guys are just chill. Oh, you're in the forest now. Oh, good. It's, you're, you're pretty okay. You're pretty okay. The Nazis are afraid of coming in. You know, they're scared of the forest. Okay, great. Yay. And uh, I think really what really hit me when the cave, entrance to the cave was actually blocked. That's, I'm like, okay, we're getting more into this. And of course, at the end, you know, with Levi and all of that, but it took the entire book before you can even get back. Erin? I just wanted to comment on the fact that I think that, um, Many of the books and movies that you read related to the Holocaust and World War II maybe sort of speed up the timeline a little bit and they make it feel like this all happened overnight. And I think that it is true for places like France, you know, they were fine. And then as soon as the Nazis invaded, which really was a matter of a week or two, that's when things changed very rapidly in that country. Um, So I think that that timeline that we're used to is true maybe for some geographic locations, but I don't think that for the vast majority of Europe um, that that was actually, you know, I think what we experienced in this book was more accurate because these laws were taking place very gradually, um, which is why a lot of people made connections between like the Trump era and regime to Hitler in the sense of like there were these laws that were like gradually chipping away at the freedoms and autonomy and human rights uh, for certain parts of our population. I mean, it was the same idea. These things did not happen all at once. It actually, a lot of how Hitler came to power took like five plus years. And I think that another situation in this book that's maybe different from the other novels is that this is taking place in Ukraine. So Ukraine was under Russia. And, well, they were under Pol- this part of Ukraine was under Poland. And then whenever Poland got invaded, then they fell under Russia very quickly. And Russia was, I mean, they were under Russian rule for quite a while, actually. What was it, like a year, year and a half? And that was, they while they were not persecuted for their religion, basically they were told to stop having, everybody was told to stop having religion and religious practices. So I don't know if that maybe also contributed to why this family took so long to go into hiding, because in a certain context, like their community had housed them for so long from the Russians or had like overlooked their religious practices in relationship to the Russian regime, that maybe by the time Germany had taken over power of that region, that they were still thinking that their community was going to do the same thing under German rule and kind of house them and protect them. I will say that I liked 
the Russian element in this, because I don't remember reading too much about the Russian element in a lot of the books. So you're absolutely right. You had Ukraine and you had Russia, and those two elements made made it a little bit different. Yeah, I wanted to comment on the timeline too. Um, I think one of the reasons why it felt like it was moving really slowly is that they were in a small space with the same people for a very long time. Like they were in the cabin for more than six months and, you know, with the same people in this small space and nothing to do, I feel like there's not a lot of things to say or not a lot of events happening and they had no contact with the outside world to know events that were going on out there and then they were in the cave for a year like in the dark they didn't even have any books like what is there to write about they slept for a year basically because they they couldn't eat they couldn't like talk they couldn't play games like there was nothing which sounds horrible and I'm sure it was like its own version of torture like being in the dark for for that long not knowing what's going on out there I'm um, just a different kind of torture I guess but I, I don't know how many things there would be to, to talk about I know you talked about like the, the stories that they would tell each other and eventually those got old too because there was they've heard them so many times <laughs> so yeah I, I don't know what else that the would have happened that you know they could talk about and kind of commenting off of the cave for that long like it is when I think at the very end of the book where she's talking about like where she got the idea for the story it is shocking to me when she talks about how spelunkers, like professional spelunkers, have never even come close to surviving in that element like these people were for that amount of time. And it just blows my mind that they were down there for that long. It's, I mean, I get why it's survivability, but I mean, wow, it was, it was very eye-opening. For me, the element that really got me about being in the cave for so long was that, you know, I visited like some of the caves here, you know, the Mark Twain thing, the, what are we talking about, Tom Sawyer and Huckberry, you know, down here. And uh, in the tour, they said that if you stay in a cave for, I don't remember how long, you'll go blind because if you, it's so dark, you will actually go blind. So that was constantly at the back of my mind going, wait, how do you, how did you guys not go blind? I was just kind of, you know, it's just something that just hit me that, wait, how did your eyes survive? How did that happen? And um, welcome, Robin and Jen. Uh, you have your hand up, so go ahead. I was just going to comment about the how do they not go blind in reference to the baby, like the baby that was born in the cave. Like she had no visual stimulation to like form her visual pathways. So did she have some lasting, you know, visual deficits? This is the doctor in me, like, right? <laughs> Wondering these things. <laughs> but, I, but I wonder, right? Um, it just would have been such a horrible, you know, thing to experience. Yeah, it was the doctor in me too going, what, what just happened? You know, medically how does your eye recover or um, does your eye recover at all? So I was gonna say when she was talking in the book about like the malnutrition and their eyesight, like being so poor from malnutrition, I was like, is it really that? Or is it, you know, the, la the lack of light and stimulus? Or I mean, maybe it was a combination of those two things that were really contributing. But yeah, she definitely hit on that. And I wondered. Robin, welcome. Uh, how you. far have you, you're very welcome. How far have you read? Um, I'm about 
two thirds of the way through. They're in the cave and they just got the rock put over the entrance so that they're trapped. Okay. And that's what I got to, which okay. was very creepy to me. Yeah, we just talked about how creepy that is when I thought was the moment in the story. I was like, oh no, now what? You know, and, and I, I didn't know. I figured she was going to obviously have this family survive. So I couldn't be too stressed out. But then I was like, well, how are they going to survive? Yeah, I, I think when I read books like this where, you know, the person telling it, you know, obviously survived through it to tell it. And it, must, it seems to have lived to an old age, you know, just from the impression I got at the beginning. It's always like, well, obviously something, you know, happened to let them survive. But I mean, I guess you don't know that they're all going to you know, midway through. It's just that I kind of think of it as a almost an odd storytelling choice to kind of spoil the end almost. What do you mean? Well, How? just because we do know that she survived, you know, at least she did. Right. You so do know she not- does, but you feel yeah. the end was spoiled. You would have rather not known. Well, I don't know. I I just always, every time I start a book like this, I'm always kind of like, oh, well, okay. I guess I already know that now. So it's just different than starting a book that's more that's just chronological. Right. I will say that we we were talking about the book being YA before you came in. And I wonder if that has something to do with it to kind of prep the kids to say, hey, guys, it's going to be OK. Yeah, name. I didn't realize it was YA until you mentioned it just in that email this week. Right. I didn't know until I finished the book. I was like, why is this book so kind of? World War II and light. And that's when I figured YA and that's why I told you. I was just going to say that while at the beginning, we know that she was alive and she made it through and she starts the story out like my real name is Hannah is Hannah and her last she says her last name or whatever. And so the whole time, like there's a couple of references to how Aryan that she looks, I guess, for lack of a better term throughout the book. And so for for some reason, I thought she was going to like assume a another identity during World War II and like be sort of adopted out or fostered out. Um, and that's how she was going to survive. So that was kind of my assumption. So even though I knew she survived, my assumptions from the beginning of the book were completely wrong on how she survived and why she changed her name. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting about how they they referenced it so many times about her look. I don't remember the name of the book I had read, but in this book, the child was given, she gave the, a woman gave her child up to the church to protect the children. And the church changed the name. And then the name, I think this child's name was changed once or twice in, in this other book. So when this came up in this book that my real name is Hana, I thought it would be something similar where at some point her parents would say, please take my kids away, you know, take this kid away. And then she would go through these name changes and all of that. Speaking of name changes, why did she finally change her name after the war? I'm trying to think. So they saw it as like a, from my understanding of the book, they saw it as in the Torah, Abraham is, was he before that Ibrahim or what? Anyway, he changes his name once he follows the commandment of God not to sacrifice his son. And um, so they saw it as like 
the way that you change your fortune, the way that you change sort of where fate is taking you is by a name change. And so that's why they changed their names. At least I, I don't know if I'm simplifying that, but that was my understanding of why they did that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, Abram and Sarai changed to Abraham and Sarah. I thought when they moved, like when they, when God told them to leave their original land, but I could be wrong. I think that's right, Robin. You're right. And that's how they changed their fate, right? Like anyway, they make reference to that at the very, very end. You know, I'm in a Jewish Muslim group and one of the topics that came up was about names and the Jewish women, this is today, like right now, the Jewish women were talking about, oh, this is my name but I have a Jewish name. So they're like, my actual name, my Jewish name is, and they have this elaborate, beautiful name, but then they're just called like, say, Aaron Beaver, you know, like that. You you just could be Aaron Beaver, but then when, if you're a Jew, you have a totally different name also. And I just found that fascinating. And I, you know, and I just wonder if where that came, where that tradition fully came from, but they said that's how they do it. Okay. Favorite scenes. What did you really like? Like things you were like, whoa, I like the scene. I'll go. I liked the scene um, with when um, Hannah and her dad go to the tree and he's explaining like how um, they're going to leave the different marks and he's like trusting her judgment and then she goes back to the tree later and she's like this is what it means and then takes all this important information back to the family so I like that part. Oh I like that part too Jim. That part I really love that part but there was this thing in me going how do you know what message I'm kind of like okay I'm glad this is not me because I would not know what to carve out and to give a message is that just blew my mind to even I'm just like how do I know what to say I'm like I don't know I'm I'm supposed to write an entire letter in a symbol how yeah do you I thought do that, that was a little maybe simple oversimplified like I can see him saying okay if you know the x were fine the o were you know that we're not fine but then for her to just come up with something that'll tell him what what happened well that seemed a little much but I thought the the sentiment of it was neat it reminded me of that part that particular scene reminded me of people texting an emoji (laughs) I was like oh things haven't really changed Um, (laughs) um so that that was like my first like instinct to that and then the second thing was you know, when you read about the French resistance and even like, uh, you know, anytime that there's like war and resistance or an undercurrent, there's always symbolism that's used. Like they used to sew it into um, like the designs in the French resistance. They sewed it into the designs related to clothing, hats, belts. Like it was like very symbolic. So I felt like it was really in line with other things that were used in that same time period that are historically accurate. Well, and I wondered too about uh, well, when, when she was doing the Pisanki of the egg um, designs with the neighbor, she wasn't supposed to be drawing designs or representing ideas as figures. I, w- I wasn't quite following what they were not supposed to be doing. Um, and it was part of her faith, um, maybe. So I maybe maybe you guys know more about this than I do. So I, I thought it was interesting that dad then trusted her to, you know, 
draw these symbols and at the end um, when she got the new egg from the neighbor he was like well these symbols do kind of fit in with our culture you know is this the the bird of resurrection or whatever it was called um and and, and so i think he kind of adapted his belief system in in some way judaism is a close relative to islam i'm told and uh in Islam, technically, drawing figures and and or having images is forbidden, technically. There are some Muslims who are very strict where they will not have pictures in their homes. Like I know Muslims who will not enter my home because there are pictures, you know, like that kind of a thing. I think there's similarities in the religion. So I think if you have a image or a symbol of some a person it could potentially be construed as worshiping or showing more value to something else and or that you're only a human you cannot create only god is capable of creation i mean i'm just thinking i'm just extrapolating from islam because i'm told it's similar i don't think it's the same but yeah yeah, I think they talked about it a little bit in this book uh, when she was with the neighbor. Like she was allowed to do things, but not, you know, to help the neighbor, but not to actually make any symbols herself. But then when they were in the woods in the cabin and she was carving on the acorns to make the dolls for the kids, like her dad didn't really like her doing it, but he didn't keep her from it. But then after but then he showed her, you know, the tree. So it was kind of like he was, and, and they also talked about like how they couldn't keep the Sabbath, you know, the way they would have normally because someone had to light the fire and it was more important to stay alive than to follow the rules. But it seemed like her dad had a really hard time with that. Favorite characters? I'll go. I really like Mrs. Pet- Petrovic. I just, I will be very honest. I wasn't sure in the beginning I know they were close. I felt the author created enough tension for me to wonder if Mrs. Petrovic can be trusted or not. And towards the end, when she hides the money in the egg, that was just amazing. I like, was it, is it Leon, the the boy that she, that the main character kind of has a crush on? I just thought he was sweet. I liked him too. I wanted more for them. I didn't, I didn't expect them just to end up as friends. Like I, she was leading, the author was leading in the direction that they would be a couple at the end. And I don't know why she decided against it. Maybe she figured that was predictable and that's what we were going to guess. So she said, well, you're going to guess it anyway. So I'm not going to give you your guess. Maybe that happened. I don't know, but that, that's something I'm going, wait, you just decided that you would be friends and you are friends and you continue that way okay fine whatever it's one of those moments you're just like okay okay it is what it is I liked that oh go ahead I was just gonna say I was also surprised by the fact that they really didn't interact much they were so close together with so few people for so long and yet they had like five interactions um and i i felt like if you really were trying to build a relationship then maybe they would have spent more time together i was surprised with that. I, I liked that that it showed that you can have a friendship with somebody of the opposite sex even you know even if you are attracted to them and i think that that's a fair 
a fair thing to talk about for YA, right? I mean, because it doesn't always have, like attraction doesn't always have to end in romance. It could be, you can have a longstanding friendship or you can have a romance that, that doesn't necessarily go anywhere because of whatever reasons and you can still maintain a friendship from that. And so I, I don't know if that was a message she was purposefully trying to send, but I like that that's a message that's, that would be sent to young adults. <laughs> Obviously, yeah, Aaron, about it as YA, that, that is true. Obviously, Erin, you haven't seen When Harry Met Sally, but anyway, uh, <laughs> moving on. I mean, I, okay. I'll give you that, Aaron. You're right. It is YA and they made it in such a way that they said, okay, this is for YA. This is acceptable. Hey, not everything has to end up in a bedroom and all of that. So I guess, okay, I can, um, I can buy that. Aisha, welcome. It's been a long time. What'd you think of the book? Okay. About the book, I think uh, it was a very different experience reading this kind of content from from other party i have been reading about a muslim uh, suffering muslim are suffering from other countries but i have i haven't read anything from jewish community so i would say it was a very it was good to read something from uh, different people who also suffered through we can say who also suffered a life whose life goes upside down due to government governments or government policy so i like the book i think it felt very different and honest. Did you like anything particular about the book? Any uh, favorite scenes? Any favorite characters? Um, I think my favorite, I would say my favorite scene is when they start living in that tunnel. I think where there is no daylight coming in and how their uh, night is day and that their days uh, appear as a night. So I love their struggle and how they didn't lose hope and always pray for the good, positive days. And obviously, Hannah is my favorite character, how he uh, write down his each and every experiences, how they went through. I love, the, particularly, I love Hannah's character, and I love their whole struggle uh, from their home to their tunnel, and then their tunnel uh, and went back to their normal life. Okay. Um, I think Aisha brings up a really uh, interesting point. Like, I didn't realize it when I was reading this, but um, it did kind of throw me back to some of the scenes from Against a Loveless World where they're in the caves, you know, in, in Palestine, right? Like, yeah, they have that from the building. They go into the caves where they're keeping all their stuff. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I didn't think about it. I did not make the parallel, but yes, that was a great book too, by the way. It's like so good. I liked what Aisha said about, you know, reading Muslim books and having the Muslim perspective and then reading a Jewish book, which Aisha has not read and being like, oh, this is the Jewish perspective. I didn't have that because traditionally, thanks to Israel and Palestine and all this craziness, there is a underlying current of Muslims and Jews, Muslims against Jews, rather. And so, you know, when Aisha said, well, I, you know, I read mostly Muslim books, but not Jewish books. I just found that, yeah, that's why books are important, because we were exposed to different points of view, different cultures, different things that are happening around the world. When you were talking just a bit ago about like the images and that like capturing images and how that's like consistent between Judaism and Islam, but it's also like when you look at 
more traditional Christian views, that's the same. So for example, um, Mennonite and Amish communities, they have very similar beliefs when it comes to images and symbolism and creation, like creating something like, uh, so for example, if you get a doll um, in the Amish community, it doesn't have a face. Um, Oftentimes they also like don't allow pictures to be taken, definitely not in the Amish community, but also oftentimes in the Mennonite community too. So uh, that's Christian belief and yet very similar philosophies or, you know, theologies on that particular topic. So I think it kind of shows that there are a lot of similarities between the different major religions of the world. I mean, I think people should maybe focus on the commonalities rather than the major differences that drive us apart instead of bringing us together. Islamically, we have, we, we call people of the book, Christians and Jews are called people of the book, which means we were all given the scripture by God and, you know, and all of that. I just think what you said, Aaron, about focusing on our commonalities not just in our religion. I mean, even if our religions are different, like for example, I mean, Islam, Judaism, you know, Christianity is very different from Hinduism for that matter, okay? Very different religions. But for today's world to focus on our commonalities of our common humanity, because ultimately these were human beings who were wanting what anyone else wants, to live and to be happy, to be respected, for the children to survive, for the children to grow up and to be productive members of society. And, you know, that's what people want. So, um, yeah. And uh, for all of you guys here, I have a surprise for you. The author is going to join us. So um, please welcome her. And I'm going to admit her. And so you guys can ask questions and everything. So um, Tara Lynn Massey, welcome. Hi. Hello. So good to see you. You too. Thank you for having me. Hello. Hi. I did not. I did not tell them you were coming. So they're all. Oh, a little, they don't. <laughs> they're all a little surprised. Well, well hopefully they haven't saying anything too bad. <laughs> no, no, no. It's just uh, the only thing I have mentioned, and one of the mentions was that I didn't know it was YA, and I think it would help. It would have helped if I'd have known. Oh, I'm getting into YA as opposed to getting into an adult historic fiction. I, but, I'm sorry, I thought I mentioned it because Katie was the person who referred me to you. She teaches high school, so I thought you, I thought it was pretty obvious. don't apologize. <laughs> Do not apologize. That's not your fault. I'm just making a commentary that, you know, because here's the thing. When I read a book, I don't look, I don't read a book for, oh, this is YA. Oh, this is historic fiction. Sometimes I'll just let a book surprise me. And I'll, I'll be like, oh, I expect this book to go this way. And then, but then in some books, you're like, I wish I'd have known, then I wouldn't have expected this, you know, but um, we were talking about our favorite characters and things like that. But one of the points that our group brought up, and maybe you can explain this a bit more, is about images and Judaism. Okay. Uh, I'm not Jewish myself. Okay. So I don't, I do not have extensive knowledge. And honestly, I did not know until I had was working with the editor. Um, my press is a Jewish press and both the publisher and the editor are Jewish. And she was a little bit opposed to some of the, uh, the fact that 
uh, Hannah was taking place a part in the Pizanki making and also that she was writing on the witness tree uh, because in the Jewish faith, faith, they believe that only God can create things. So that's why they're sort of opposed. The really, you know, Orthodox Jews are opposed to these graven images. They feel that you are sort of mimicking God, and in in mimicking Him, you're you're you know, it's 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 not it's not a good thing. So she and I talked about it, and I actually found in a book that they had actually published um, a historic reference to the folklore story that Uncle Levi tells about how the Jews came into Poland and actually did supposedly live in caves at some point and worship in caves and how they used to do sort of prayer stuff on the trees in the grotto. So I went to her and I said that this, this it was based on this and you know they were supposedly in their folklore and actually it was in a book that you published. So she saw that and she's like, okay, I'm good with this. There was also the issue with the making the dolls, because again, that's sort of a really orthodox Jews at up to a certain point, uh, she said, would not even have had dolls, because again, that's sort of a symbol, a, 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 a creation of life, uh, of real life, you know, again, sort of a God didn't create it, but you're creating it. And so we did, I did find images during the Holocaust of children making dolls or having dolls. So then again, you know, we got past that. Uh, but I am very grateful to her because she did find some other things that I had gotten wrong and fixed. So it was definitely uh, a benefit to have a Jewish editor on the book. So I hope that answers the question about why they would be opposed to that or why she had to explain, you know, get her parents permission to work with Allah on the Pazanki eggs. I um, love that. I, I love your explanation. And, uh, and I like it even more because it really puts the place of an editor. You know, we write stories. You as an author, you write a story and you do your research and you try to be as authentic as possible and you get the story as right as possible. And this is why a great editor and an authentic editor at that is valuable and other references are valuable. So just the stories, I like it. Yeah, and I think in particular, uh, I've discussed this before with, with other groups. If there's any topic that a writer needs to get 100% accurate, 110% accurate, it's writing about the Holocaust. You know, you have to honor the victims and the survivors by telling the truth in any way that you can. Uh, at least, you know, I would think that a respectful, good author feels that way. You know, there are authors out there who exploit the topic, but for, um, you know, authors who are trying to, you know, do the right thing, you, ha you have to get it right because you're portraying something that, as you know, there's still a lot of denial about to this day. And being able to say everything in there is accurate is very important. Where does this concept come about? I, I read in your uh, 
commentary that you wanted to showcase survivors from the cave because you were intrigued by that. Was there anything else or where does the soul story come about? Or did you always want to write a World War II historic fiction? No, no, I, I never thought I would do it. Um, I wasn't even, I was mainly a short story writer up until that point. And I had a couple of failed novels behind me. Uh, I didn't even finish a novel. I had incomplete novels that I had started and lost interest in. And if any of you write short stories out there, you know that you're always getting pressure from people to write a novel. It's really, you know, only, there's only a small population that values short stories. Everybody wants the novel from you. So, um, you know, that's always in the back of a short story writer's mind is, can I do it? Do I want even want to do it? And then I rented a DVD uh, that I had seen an ad for on the History Channel called No Place on Earth and watched it with uh, my husband and my 16-year-old son at the time. And, you know, it was a Friday night and normally my son would go upstairs uh, afterwards and disappear into his room, but he stayed with us and, and talked to us about it. And we were all very deeply affected by the story. If you have not watched it, I believe, I think someone told me it's on Netflix. I got it out of the library, but it's it's very, very powerful documentary. And if you do nothing else, if you haven't already done so, you should go to the site, No Place on Earth, and at least see the trailer. And then you'll see, you know, what inspired me. And I just, I'm very into nature. So it was a combination of the powerful story, seeing my 16-year-old son being captured by the story and this sort of the natural world as a safety place, a place of almost protection and healing, like Mother Earth kind of a thing, that all of that kind of came together. And I went to bed that night and woke up the next morning with almost the first line in my head and sat down and started writing. And didn't I didn't want to stop because I knew if I did, I might not finish. So even if I didn't know where I was going, I left a blank paragraph or a blank page, whatever, and I just kept going. So within 30 days, I had a really, really bad first draft, um, worked on it. And three months later, had a a pretty decent first draft. And I think I I started sending it out to agents, maybe a few months after that, and was lucky to find an agent. And, you know, then the process started. Actually, no, I'm, I'm, I'm getting it completely wrong here. I had to put it aside for a while. My son was graduating from high school at that point. So I had the draft finished, but I had to put it aside. So the timeline between that 30-day draft and publication was almost eight years. And there, in between that, there was tons of research because I had the draft, but I had to fill in all these really important details. And I didn't realize until... I got involved in this, how uh, little information there was on Ukraine during that time. And even, you know, we're maybe now 10 years later after I started the book, and much more information is available now than there was when I started. And even when we were working on proofreading pages, I was still doing research and finding stuff that was not available eight years ago. And that was because when Russia came in and took over again, they clamped down on anything that had to do with the Holocaust. You weren't allowed to discuss it. No one talked about it. Uh, it didn't happen. And uh, it wasn't until the 1990s when they got their independence and they opened up that people were stuck, were allowed to start going into the country and, and doing some research. And there was a priest, his book is called Holocaust by Bullets. And 
he's really one of the first people that shine light on what had taken place during the Holocaust because as a priest, he traveled across the country and he was able to talk to, you know, people felt comfortable divulging their deepest secrets and the horrors that took place then because of the confidentiality, I guess, and just his mannerism. And so he was the first one to start really you know, at least in the Western world, start recording what had happened. And from there, uh, and, and to Ukraine's credit, they they are working, especially in Poland, I've worked with the Polish museum there. And, you know, every day they're doing research and trying to capture the stories that were lost or almost lost. But I was challenged because I don't, I don't speak Polish. And much of the first person narratives are in Polish there. So that was another challenge. Uh, so I, and I did, luckily I had a lot of help from historians. You know, I have to give them credit. Uh, people, I find historians love to help other people because they love what they do and they like to pass their knowledge on. So, so that, was, that was great. And um, I, again, I had the um, Jewish press that was able to fill in some of the lapses that I had or, the, you know, the little errors I'd made here and there. And uh, she was particularly helpful with food. So she worked with me on a lot of the recipes and the food that foods that they ate, which was a lot of fun. I have to say, like, I was really excited when we got into the book and I realized that it took place in Ukraine because, okay, the second book from the Tattooist of Auschwitz, they they hit on a little bit about Ukraine during the Holocaust, and they make reference to the fact that there weren't a lot of records kept and into the fact that um, the Russian government kept a lot of stuff under wraps, even, I guess, in like Eastern Germany, too. So they make reference to that in that book. And that's when it hit me that there were it wasn't just about Germany or England or France or Poland during World War II. There were other countries, you know, that were really deeply affected and maybe even I mean, they're their Jewish population even more decimated than what you hear about with Germany or France. So I was really excited to hear more about that history and um, that it told, you know, the story from of World War II from a different perspective. Uh, Thank you. Yes. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons I was able to sell the book was uh, at the time, I think there was only one other book that was in, you know, published in this country that I'm aware of that was set in Ukraine. There are a couple more now starting to come out again, because, you know, there is a little bit more for them to go on. But yes, Poland and Ukraine were decimated. I believe it's over 3 million Jews, as opposed to maybe I'd have to go back and look. I actually have a map in I have a free downloadable reader's guide that's on my website. It's also on the press's website. And it's got some additional information in there. And one of them is a map. And if you look at the number of people who were killed in Germany, uh, it's, it's nothing compared to the 3 million that were in Poland and Ukraine. Nobody really comes close to that. And Poland gets a lot more attention because of the, the uprisings in the ghettos. So, and also because it was a different, you know, a different country and more information came out, there were more upstanders there, more people who helped out and a lot more records were kept and in Ukraine, there was it was a very rural, spread out, huge country. I mean, they didn't even have paper to write on. So that was another challenge was how do you do research 
after a culture has been decimated and didn't even have paper to write a lot of stuff down. So a lot of it was oral. You had to rely on oral stories after that. Yeah, um, I'm, I, I have to give credit to, to a Holocaust survivor who I, I had, was reading the, the newspaper, my local newspaper when I lived in Andover, Massachusetts. And uh, there was this, while I was writing the book, and there was this man who had come to our town hall and given a talk that I missed, unfortunately. And so I managed to contact him. He was a, he's a Polish writer. And he very graciously agreed to meet with me. And um, his wife is remarkable, too. And they really took me under their wing. And he, as it turns out, he grew up near where the book took place. So I would not, I don't think I would have been able to make it as authentic as it I hope it came out without his uh, input. They were so happy that I was doing this. Uh, I was a little worried when I first went to meet them, not knowing what to expect, because there are survivors who feel they're being exploited. And in particular, when people write about the graphic details of the Holocaust, um, there's even a name for it called Holocaust porn. I did not want to go in that direction, especially because it was YA, but also because to me, that's been written about. We've seen, we've heard some of the horrible stories and the nightmarish graphic details, especially of people in the ghettos. And I wanted to write a story about how people survive rather than what they survived. So that was my goal. And they really appreciated that. And I'm in total awe of Holocaust survivors. They're sort of like otherworldly superheroes to me. I don't, how they got through. And this man's story was really horrific, what he went through. He was a child Holocaust survivor because all, all the, the adult survivors are gone now. So we're down to just the child Holocaust survivors who are in their 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever. I feel very privileged to, you know, call them friends now and to have their stamp of approval you know, on, on the book. And he actually, uh, he read it and he, t- he kept me from going off in the beginning. I was going in the wrong direction in the beginning. And he said that uh, you, you made it sound too idyllic before the Germans came, that even under Russian rule, it, depending on where you were, it could be pretty bad as well. The Sturmer family had been in a village where they had assimilated more than in other places and the Russian uh, occupation was not as bad as it was in some other places. What I discovered in doing Ukrainian history is that every village had a different story. So, you know, some people will read and say, well, it was nothing like that because their story is so different because they were thousands of miles away and experienced a different different group, um, a different army, you know. So I went off trail there. I don't even know where I started on that one, but... <laughs> But it, 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 was enri- it was enriching to write this story. I was just going to ask, um, your short stories, do you usually write towards a YA audience? Or like, do you think that the fact that your son got so involved in this topic was maybe an influence on why you wrote it as a YA novel? It's definitely why I wrote it as a YA novel, because I saw that interest and I thought, you know, this need, this story needs to be told to young people. I'm very aware that our young generation is dealing with anxieties and stresses that we didn't have to deal with. I wanted to teach them coping skills 
you know, if, you know, how, if, if this young girl could get through the Holocaust and go through this, uh, you can get through whatever you're going through and how did she do it and maybe get some insight into that uh, because they are dealing with a lot and COVID did not exist when I wrote this. So on top of climate change and, and uh, you know, other anxious stuff to be anxious about, now they're dealing with COVID. Uh, yes, I, I want. I specifically wrote this for YA, but no, I have no YA history whatsoever. I may never write another YA novel again at this point. You know, the next novel is for adults. I'm kind of a bit of a marketing nightmare for agents, but as a result. So, but, um, why do you say that? I, li- I like to write what, you know, I feel passionate about, whether it's marketable or the right thing to do uh, in any case. What was your um, favorite part? Like, what did you absolutely love to write? in this book? Uh, I loved writing about the Pazanki making and doing research into that and finding out that was the real authentic way that they used to do it in the Carpathian Mountains. I love that relationship. You know, there's so much darkness in the book and that was one of the lighter things. Uh, I also loved writing about the witness tree. Um, I had done research for another, a short story and discovered these arbor glyphs and witness trees and wanted to bring it into the story somehow. So that was a lot of fun to do. And I love research, any kind of research. I'm, I'm definitely um, a research hound and I feel a little bit like a mystery detective or a history detective sometimes. You come across stuff when you're researching and you don't know, you know, it's like this, you know, wonderful you know, moment that, or that light bulb that goes over your head when you're, when you find this detail or this piece of history and you know, you can use it, you know, it's like finding a little treasure trove. So yeah, no, I love, I love research and I loved all of it, but I think the, uh, the relationship between Hannah and Allah and also between her and her father, I enjoyed exploring that and trying to develop that and his wisdom versus her innocence. Kind of. Okay, what was the, what about the converse? What was challenging? <laughs> the research. You love the research. <laughs> but not, yeah, but the Holocaust, um, especially in the beginning when I was reading Holocaust by Bullets and some other books, stuff that I was not aware of. Total night. I actually got nightmares the first few months when I was doing the research. It was very difficult to read. And there was at one point I said, do I really want to spend all my time on this? It's, um, it's not easy, you know, and I'm, I'm definitely a very sensitive person. And to when you write, you try to put yourself in people's in the place of people. So it was a difficult emotional thing to do. And I think that there was one scene where I can't even read it. And uh, I, I start crying. And that's the one where the, you know, she talks about the mother who smothered the baby to keep the, you know, from feeling the bullet that she knows is going to go through her back. That is, that's from a real, that's a real story a real, that happened. Someone did that. So that, to me, that was sort of worse than any of the horrific things that I had read. And so, yes, I would cry when I would, would write that or go back and edit through that scene. Uh, that was very difficult. The scene towards the end where Hannah and her family changed their names, I had, was wondering, like, was that something that was regularly done? And um, and what do you know about that? Because I had just never, I appreciated the ties to, you know, Judaic beliefs in, in that, but I, I just 
had no context of that happening before. Uh, I didn't either till I was again doing research. And the, the original title of the book was The Witness Tree. I sent it out with that title and I lived with, you know, with that title for six, seven years and I loved it. And so did my agent, but the editor very correctly said it's too basically sterile. We need to have Hannah in there. So we need to retitle the book. Uh, So we came up with my real name is Hannah. But before that, my agent, I did not have that in the first line. The first line was just, my name is Hannah Slifka. The agent said to me, um, why is she telling her story now? She, there needs to be a reason that she's telling the story for the first time. I don't even, I couldn't even tell you it was so long ago what took me down the path, but I discovered, uh, I don't know if I was Googling names or I don't, I don't know what I did to find it, but discovered this custom Jewish custom, and it is in the Bible, I, the, where he quotes, that is there, uh, that they had, do have a very long history of being allowed um, for reli- you know, religious reasons to change their names to protect themselves. They have been persecuted for millennia, and it is a survival, survival skill uh, or survival tactic. Yes, it goes back centuries and you see it even in this country where uh, you may meet people who don't have a last, you know, who are Jewish, but don't have a, what sounds to us who are not Jewish, like a Jewish name, or it's slightly changed. It's not, you know, they've dropped some part of the name and it's, it's to hide. And because I don't believe, unfortunately, that they ever feel truly safe. America, for the most part, has been a place for them to feel safer. Um, but not lately. And I did do a book club with a Jewish group. And there was actually a man there who said he was looking for hiding places again, that he never thought he would say that, but he's, he's starting to look again for hiding places. Yeah, the anti-Semitism goes back a long way. And yes, sometimes that's the most basic way to hide. It's very disturbing. Like, I didn't think people were looking for hiding places today. That's Well, we saw the shootings in the synagogues, the rhetoric over the past four years, and it's been really been whipped up. It doesn't seem to be going down all that much. This book has actually not gotten into certain schools because of the comment I make in the back about anti-Semitism being on the rise. Um, I've gotten some angry letters over that comment. And so uh, that's the, unfortunately, because I made that comment, this book did not get into more schools as I wish, you know, had happened. If this book had come out eight years ago, I don't think people would have thought twice about it. But at this at this point, it was a tough time for, it, it was an important time for the book to come out. But because of my statements, uh, it did it did hurt some sales. Well, I'm going to recommend my that my school district look look at buying some of these. My husband teaches high school. He doesn't teach English, but he has a lot of friends that teach English. And I was going to gift my copy to one of the teachers and encourage them to look at it for their curriculum. Thank you. I appreciate it because that, like I said, that's that was sort of the whole goal was to get into schools. Uh, you know, depending on the, the the school system, and it's getting worse. Um, I'm sure, you, I don't know if you've heard, you know, uh, in the school system with all the, the uh, I don't want to get too political, but with all the backlash against teaching, this kind of thing, even it, even the Holocaust has been mentioned as being inappropriate for young people to teach. You know, a- any help I can get is appreciated. Uh, you know, it's, I had read that you have, before a child is 12, you have to teach them empathy because once they go beyond 12, it's very difficult. 
So, you know, it, it's, it's very important to get kids reading when they're younger because that increases empathy. And also to, it's a tough story. Um, I've had some children have d- difficult, who are very sensitive, have difficult, you know, time with it. But, you know, as all important stories are, they can be difficult. But thank you. I would really appreciate that. I think as a parent, I've kind of struggled with like for ideas about things like the Holocaust and other just difficult things, like at what age to start introducing things and how, because part of me just wants, I don't want my kids to know how terrible other people are, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. but if you don't teach them not to be that way. So I've struggled with that. I actually, one of the first events I did, there were a lot of Ukrainians in the, in the audience who came up to me and were, again, so grateful because they said that they had never been able to tell their children about their experience or their parents' experience, but they were going to give them this book for the first time to help them open the door to discuss it. But there was a woman there, a mother, who said, I've been hesitant because I I hate to kill that innocence in a child. But what I say these days, your kids are saying far worse out there on the internet, on phones, than then is in any Holocaust book for young adults. So be aware of that. They are exposed to much darker stuff on a certain level that's visual and disturbing on different levels. So I think uh, it, for people asking about ages, this particular book has been vetted for age nine and up. And I have had uh, mothers who insist on giving their eight-year-old daughters the book because they feel that their eight-year-old daughter reads at the nine or 10-year, you know, level. So I, I always tell when I, you know, I'm in a bookstore and parents are coming by, I say, you should read it first. You should vet it first, because I do think every parent should, you know, be able to, if they're presenting the book, should be able to decide whether it's appropriate for their child or not, because children are different and some are more sensitive than others. Um, and then if you think it's appropriate, give it to them then, give them to them next year or the year after that when you think it's appropriate. But I, again, I think it, I, I think it's important. I can only speak for my book because I do know that there are Holocaust books for young children out there that may not be as appropriate, that include more gory details or are a little more commercial. But again, they're reading, they are reading, I mean, look at the Hunger Games, young kids reading the Hunger Games. I mean, those are stories of people literally killing each other and being killed. And in some ways, I think it's worse that it's fantasy because they can distance themselves from it. And then they become sort of immune to that. Oh, it's, it's not fake. It's not real. And that can get in the way of creating empathy. But if someone can read and know that there is a basis of truth behind it, that barrier comes down. So that, that's just my personal opinion, though. I really appreciate that advice. And I agree with Robin. It's really hard as a mom to know what books, you know, to let your, your kids read or to read to them. But yeah, that Robin, I put it on there. We Stories is a... I think a website that, I mean, they're an organization, but they promote books that go over topics like this and like inclusion topics and they give age appropriate lists on their website. But one of like right now, I, I mean, I'm reading a book to my daughter who's seven, Nora, and we're reading I Am Mulala, which actually does discuss 
what she experienced with the Taliban. And it, it t- discusses her being shot. And while I should have probably vetted it, like you suggested <laughs> ahead of time, it, it is, I do think that they introduce it, all these topics in an age appropriate way. And I've been surprised with the questions that she asked at age seven, and also to be able to see the empathy that she is developing yeah, at her age. Right. Yes. And that's really important. Yeah. And it's, 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 I think it's crazy that you're reading to her too, so that you're there with her to, uh, if she gets anxious, you know, calm her down, answer her questions, gauge how she's feeling, um, make her feeling protected because she's next to you. I think it's a good thing, you know, when you're not sure. A lot of times we don't realize that the kids are looking to us for our reactions to things when we're not even aware of it, that they're watching us. So uh, if you're getting upset with what you're reading, they they get the clue, okay, this is a bad thing. So I, th- I think it's great that you're reading it to her. Yeah, I had, I have my oldest daughter, especially always had a reading level higher than her chronological age, which was fine until we got into kind of the middle grade where she could read at a level, but the topics were probably more than I thought appropriate at that point. So I had the school librarian kind of helped me with sorting through that, you know, but I was just like, well, just because she can read something doesn't mean she should always. So yeah. And again, I I hate to remind you that um, no matter how much you're protecting your kids at this point, they are seeing an awful lot when you're not around. Uh, Even if you're being very careful at home, they're going to other people's homes. They're looking at people's phones. They're discussing stuff that we're we're not necessarily aware of. And it's unfortunate. I feel for you guys as parents right now. Um, I was at the tail end of that. And it's a loss of control for parents. Not that, you know, it's a great thing to be in complete control of your child. But I do really feel for you who are bringing up younger younger children and are having this outside influence that you can't necessarily control. You can't necessarily, you can't keep it from coming into your house all the time or, you know, and it's a very difficult thing to navigate, but you all sound like, you know, parents who are doing, you know, the right thing, you know, being very careful and watching over your kids and making sure that they're getting, you know, what the right age, what they should be getting. And that's a good thing for your kids. Well, we were wondering about the relationship with the between Hannah and the boy wondering we just I guess a lot of us kind of saw it going more towards romantic and then and then it didn't we were wondering about Um, why you chose to go that way was it YA decisions or no otherwise no not at all like I said (laughs) they'd be you know whatever I would put in there even on a smaller scale they'd be prepared for I I did it to be realistic Um, I didn't want to, she's 16, roughly at that point, 16-ish, 18. It's just not realistic necessarily that that's that one person that's the love of your life and it's going to happen that way. And I wanted to show that they still had this really strong bond, even though they weren't going down the same path. And I've been both thanked for that and I've been both criticized for that. So it's, you know, each reader makes up their own mind. You know, it's probably split 50-50 in that regard. I like that they didn't get together personally, even though I liked the relationship and I loved Leon. I thought it was stronger that the friendship be what remained after what they had been through. 
I very much appreciated that because I Mm -hmm. felt like that that's a message that doesn't always get sent to young people that you can be attracted to somebody, but you don't have like that doesn't have to end in a romantic relationship. Or if you have, if you try a romantic relationship with somebody that's a friend and it doesn't work out, like you don't have to end your friendship over that. So I personally appreciated that decision. And I haven't read a lot of YA books, but I, you know, I read enough when I was younger, my own self, and then some, and recently, and um, it sells books. I think authors put it in there because they know people want to read about it, but I don't think it's sending a great message to our young women, because again, you're still, you're, you're putting the, the onus and the power into uh, the relationship rather than the person growing on their own. So, you know, that's a little bit of my, I have a sociology background, so that's a little bit of a sociologist coming out there. And I wanted to show girls that, yes, there could be something there. It's not necessarily has to be Prince Charming and the love of your life. And it's okay if it doesn't go anywhere, you're going to find somebody down the road and just hang in there. <laughs> so that's, you know, that was the intention there. I can appreciate that. I mean, I wanted it to go in a rela- in a romantic relationship. I'm not going to lie. That's what I wanted. But then again, that's just talking about the standard run-of-the-mill kind of your reader who's not as sophisticated as Erin is to think in terms of sociology or going, wait a minute, this is not realistic. What do we really want for our women? You know, I need to be thinking that, wait a minute, this is the right way to do it. And I've fallen into the trap of- I do too. I'm not saying I'm, I'm not saying I'm this great sociologist who like doesn't feel that way too. When I, I know when I read books and I knew when I wrote it that I'd be disappointing some people. And I didn't necessarily know, I'm, I'm a very instinctive writer. I didn't necessarily know until I was writing whether it was going to go anywhere or not. But I think I sort of realized Uh, at some point that they had been through too much and it wasn't going to work and they were going separate ways, different continents, different places. And um, it it wasn't in the cards for them. And I did get criticized for sort of speeding the end up a little bit uh, at the end, you know, suddenly she's married and, you know, has this kid and people are like, I wanted more of that. <laughs> like, well, you know, uh, the story took place in Ukraine. So that's why I didn't put too much in there, but you know, we're still, we're still programmed for the fairy tale endings, you know, and especially in America, that's a definitely, a, it's definitely a cultural thing. You can see it when you're watching films and movies. Uh, if you watch, European films, they're much more into realistic endings than, you know, that's, I mean, the Hollywood ending, that's the the term comes from our, you know, the panning and the circling of the two people kissing around, you know, at the end. And so we've been brought up to expect that. No, it is good. It's good because that's why we read to expose ourselves that, hey, you know, let's, (laughs) let's get real here. It's like, wake up. You've been brainwashed. You've been brainwashed into believing this Cinderella story or whatever story or that a woman needs a man or that there has to be a relationship. You're not even a marriage. There has to be a relationship. There has to be a man for a woman for the story to work. And we've been so brainwashed and trained to think in that direction that when a story goes in another direction and says, you know, this woman's just going to have a friendship and she's just going to go with it. 
you're like, wait, no, wait, 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 no, 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 no. That that's not how. <laughs> that's not my imprinting. That's not my storyline. And it's kind of like you're so used to what's normal. Unfortunately, the normal is the Cinderella, which is shouldn't be the norm. You're used to that, and then this unusual blimp comes up on the screen, which is your abnormal. But that's really the reality. Is that's the normal. The normal should be all of this, and then the blimp on the screen should be the Cinderella and the prince, where you're going. Well, wait, what is this? But we have it upside down, and. I, I know I'm a victim to it. I mean, I know 100% I'm very much a victim to all the stories and the... Well, and that's okay. I mean, we all, we're all drawn to different types of books and different genres. And um, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I just think, and if I were writing for adults, I mean, the adult novel I'm writing, there is going to be a relationship. There is going to be... You know, I'm not going to give the ending away, but, you know, it, it's it's different than this ending. Let's put it that way. Uh, but for younger people, I thought it was I had more responsibility to to show at that age what happens. I mean, there are very few people that get together with anybody that young. There are very few people that, you know, the first person they're interested in is the person for the rest of their life. I mean, we've all heard one or two stories like that, but it's not the norm. And the story was not a love story. Uh, if, it were, if it were a love story, clearly that would be focus, but the focus is on survival. So I'm sorry. <laughs> no, don't apologize. No, this is good. It, it is. I'm saying thank you for getting me out of this, you know, mental fog. And what you know, we all tend to fall into some sort of a mental fog and we really need to um, be open-minded to be like, okay, no, why are you in this cookie cutter thought process? Because the world is not cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. The world is well, a because it place sells, and because, relation- what- because it sells. I like that because it sells. It, it sells. It does. You know, um, I, I, no, I've talked to many writers and I know, you know, I know what's behind a lot of stuff and, um, and the pressures that some of them get. And um, there's a strong need for it, too. And I, and I think that it's great that those books exist because there's a very clear need for them for some people. And it gets them through whatever they need to get through. Uh, and I've been victim. I used, to, I used to read all these horrible, I shouldn't say that, these suspense novels when I was young. Uh, that was one of my genres that I like to read. And I, I don't write any anything like that today. But I grew up reading those. And I, I would have to credit my mother because she would look at what I was reading and she would say, I don't know if that's a good idea that you keep reading these books. And I'm like, why not? She's like, that's not real. That's not realistic. Don't think life is like that. And I kept reading them, but her voice was, you know, suddenly in the back of my head. And as I became an English major and got into English literature and started reading other stuff like Flannery O'Connor, you know, it's like, no, yeah, no, things don't necessarily go like that. So um, uh, again, there's a mother looking over the shoulder of her daughter, what she's reading and didn't tell me not to read it, but, you know, made some comments which were helpful. That reminds me, one thing I really, really loved about the storyline was that it starts like the conversation between the mother and the child starts because of notes that were in like, you know, the back pages and margins of a book, which is like I could so relate to because my mom was an English major. And so she had 
copies of lots of different books like Animal Farm and Huckleberry Finn and I mean, you know, Into the Wild and stuff like that on our bookshelf that she had written in the margins and underlined. And um, when it came time for me to read those for school, I used her copies and not the school copy. And I learned, honestly, like my mom is not a very open person or like talkative person, but I learned so much more about her and her thought processes from that experience, reading her notes and margins of books than I did from our conversations. You know, so that's I fascinating. That. I don't know if you, I don't know if you write it all, but that would make a great essay. That's a really interesting story there. Yeah, the book came from. I, I wanted her to treasure a book and have some, you know, have something to hold on to. So I looked for a long time, and then I read a memoir. Um, I highly recommend this. It's nonfiction, but it's it's really well done. It's Greg Dawson's Hiding in the Spotlight. He's one of the blurbers of my book, and it's about his mother who survived. Uh, the Holocaust. He, he was a journalist, so it's really well written. It was about his mother, so he has all this information. And it's an incredible story. She was a musician. That's the title, Hiding in the Spotlight, is she and eventually her sister, they played in a camp for the Nazis, but they, they did not know she was Jewish. There was a mention of her treasuring her, her Joan of Arc book. And I was like, ah, good. I found a book. And uh, it, it had to be something that they would have read that I, you know, that had been translated in Ukraine uh, from the English. And so I did ask him for permission. I said, do you, you know, do you mind if I steal this and use it in the book? And he said, no, go, go right ahead. So that's where that detail come. There was this woman who did, she didn't carry it around with her and write in, in the margins, but um, that book was very special to her in Ukraine. I have a, actually a personal question to ask you from a wannabe author to an author what would your advice be? I mean, I have a, what, do you, what would you call it? I don't know, a third draft of a book, a, a third draft. I've had, like, I've written the draft. I've had a couple of, uh, actually three or three people read it. They've given me notes. I've fixed it. And now I'm rereading all of it and just re-editing a chapter at a time. And I'm noticing when I'm re-editing chapters, there isn't much that I'm editing at all. Like I, it's more. just flowing. Mm-hmm. Even for me, it's mm-hmm. just flowing. There's, I'm hardly ever stopping and editing right now. I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. but I'm still only chapter four. There's a lot more to go. So advice, where to next? What should I do next? You said you haven't, fi- you haven't finished the novel. Is it finished? It's finished, yes, but not 100%. Like, I still have to re-edit, tweak a little bit, but it's finished. But it's finished, yeah. You just said you have to to tweak a little bit, so you have to tweak a little bit. Right, (laughs) okay. Yes, I have to tweak a little bit. And then at some point, obviously, you have to start looking for an agent. That's the first step. Without getting um, an editor? That's up to you. If you if you think you need an editor, then yes, by all means, you can hire an editor. But if you've had people vet it and you've had other people look through it and they think it's they think it's ready, that's up to you and your writing skill and your level. If you're not going to self-publish it, self-publishing people really need an editor because it's going to go straight to whatever. But if if you think it's ready, and if people have told you that, then the next step is to start trying to find an agent and see what their reaction is. And if you know you send to 50 people and they're all saying this needs more work, or 25 
people. Uh, then you continue to work on it or hire an editor at that point and then send it out again. So that's generally the path. And, and because nobody, I, my, I, did, I went through an edit with my agent and then I went through one or two edits with the publisher. So it, don't think that what you've written now is what's going to be published down the road. You know, they, they often go through multiple edits. That, that really does help. I'm, thank you so much. That helps a lot because I like what you said about editing. If it's self-published, if it's going to be self-published, I better get an editor, better get it looking good. Then I can self-publish. But my intention is not to self-publish, at least not at this stage in the game. Mm-hmm. I do want right. to go traditional publisher. I just thought that maybe I needed to get an editor before I got an agent, yeah. just just so it would be a polished work that I am, I guess, um, requesting or I, I don't know what the word is. But I think that's a personal thing. And that has to do with whether you need line editing or content editing. Uh, line editing is grammar, spelling. Content is, you know, again, working with you on the book. Right. And, you know, no one's going to read it for free. They're going to charge you. Right. You can get evaluations. So if you're really unsure, you can hire someone to evaluate your manuscript and let you know their thoughts for a minimal fee and see what they think, knowing that they're invested in telling you that it needs work too. But, you know, at some point you just have to trust yourself if you think it's ready and just start sending it out and be prepared for rejection and listen to, you know, everybody's going to have a different opinion, but if you get 10, 20 of the same opinion, that's telling you, you know, something. So. Okay. That, that really helps. I mean, I, I've been, you know, I, I talk to a lot of authors, as you know, and I'm trying to balance out what the right way is and Every author has a different path Mm -hmm. to get to from where they're starting to where they end. Mm -hmm. And every author has a different process also. So it's just kind of, I I, I really appreciate what you said, because I, the one missing piece of the puzzle was that you absolutely need an editor if you're self-publishing, but if you're not, you're going to go, I I know I'm going to go through several edits that I'm, I know the first time it go, if, if it gets accepted by an agent, I know they're going to send it back with fully, it's going to bleed all over the page. I am aware of that. (laughs) It's going to be like red everywhere, which is totally fine i'm aware of it but i just wanted to make sure that yeah i, I would have I, a better it's chance very, yeah it's hard for me to say that's this you know you, you have it's all opinions you've taken courses sure. i don't know if you've taken any, anything in the history but i would say that uh you either have to trust yourself at some point and start sending it out or to see if you can get an evaluation it's the place called um I was involved with at one point. I used to be a manuscript editor for um, Grub Street Writers. They're in Boston, but you can go to their site and uh, look. It's a little hard to find, but you'll find a, a section there and you can hire an editor. And they're all writers and you can pick your subject, you know, see, you know, pick who you want to work with. Mm-hmm. And it's not hugely expensive, if, depending on what you're looking for. And you could ask, you could ask someone that you admire there to. Uh, take a look and let you know whether it does need you do need to hire someone or not and whether they would do it or not or refer you to somebody else uh, you can do that and for a minimal fee and they're all very good there well thank you thank you so much I mean every as you know as an author every author's process is different so here's my question about the actual um, writing of your book did you write it linear you know chapter one chapter two chapter three you know or you wrote it like, a big jumble and then put it all together. I did write it. 
I did write it linear because, as I said, I was just in a mad rush to get to the end and make sure I got to the end. And the novel I'm writing now is oh so linear. Overwhelming research on this one, too. So I'm doing it. It's almost like four books, you know, the prologue, part one, part two, part three. <laughs> so wow. the only way I can get my head around this because there's three different, four different set, three, four different settings is to do each one separately. And I'm going in order. And it's the, the only way I can keep track of everything. When I write longer short stories, I don't necessarily write when I write. Sometimes I know the ending and I have the ending and then I go back to the beginning. Uh, or there's a scene I know I have to get down before I forget it. There's something when you get older, you have to do more and more. Um, <laughs> Tell me about so, it. <laughs> uh, the, the, the process is different, but for the novels, I find I find novels very difficult to write. So I have to write them, you know, very organized and linear in linear fashion. Well. Do you have any questions for us? Um, no. I mean, you guys have asked the, you know, you're the readers. You ask the questions. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that everybody's here. It was fun to see the surprise on people's faces that <laughs> popped in. And, you know, whether you love the book or not, I hope there's something in it that you learned that you can take away with it. And just if you if you did love it for small press books, reviews are really, really important. So if you bought it on Amazon or Bookshop or you're on Goodreads, I, I don't even care if it's not a five-star review. Any review that's not a one-star <laughs> is is very helpful to to authors. And know that at, at this point on Amazon, nobody's probably going to read the review it's just the number of reviews because I have some friends who are like oh I've, I've got to like write I've got to study this I have to like write a little essay and I have to be perfect I'm like no you can write one sentence at this point it's going to be way at the back you know and it's just the number because Amazon especially like Amazon I don't know how bookshop works but Amazon has this this there in their system that the more people visit the page and are active on the page the more they promote it. So it's, it's, it's so important. So that would be my plea is that if any of you are comfortable doing that, uh, it really helps, especially small press authors, you know, the bestsellers who've got, you know, 20, 30,000 reviews don't need another one, but um, the smaller press authors always, and not just for me, any, anybody in the future too, that you read who um, consider that, uh, that it's, if you, if you like their book, it's, you're doing them a great service. And thank you. Uh, yes, went way longer than I thought it would, but it was a lot of fun. And I really appreciate the questions. And uh, it's always good to talk about, you know, what people liked and didn't like. And I, I learned to myself when I'm, you know, moving on to the next one. So I, you know, I appreciate all the comments. And we thank you very much for taking the time. And I know you're very tired and uh, you're on Eastern time. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for gracing us with your presence. Thank you for the book and thank you for writing about such a sensitive topic and um, really appreciate you thank you and good luck well, on I'm, the next one thank you yes well i'll, I'll keep i'll keep you all posted <laughs> yes please do um, do we want to do real quick oh yeah book cover title mm-hmm. and uh, rating okay. i would give it i give the title a five and i like the cover i think it's very naturey and depicts what the book's about. Okay. And your final rating of the book. Okay. So if I'm judging it from an adult context book, I would say it's a four. If I'm judging it from a YA, I would say it's probably like a 4.5. So I guess I would round that up to a five for YA. Okay. For me, the book title is really a 
3.5, so I would round it up to a four. I actually like the other title she mentioned, the uh, the tree title. Remember that she was mentioning, what did she say? The um, the witness tree. The witness tree. I really like that title. I think if she hadn't mentioned it, I might have given this title high. I don't know. Anyway, 3.5, so round it up to a four. The, um, that's the title. The cover, I'm going to give it a three. It's just, it's kind of dark. There's a child there. I didn't look at the cover too closely. It's not a cover that grabbed me. Like I didn't want to sit there and go, oh, let me see what else is there. So give it a three. And the book itself, I like what you said, Erin. If I'm going to rate it as an adult book, I would rate it as a three. But as a YA, I would give it a 4.5 for sure. You know, like if I thought YA, no, for a YA historic fiction, 4.5. As an adult, I would give it a three. But that's me. Okay, uh, Dr. Jen, you want to go? Uh, yeah, I, I think I would give, give it just a straight four across the board. So I, I liked the title. I liked the cover. I liked the book in general. I didn't love any of it. I think I would rate uh, four uh, to both cover and title. I love the combination and I like, I think I like the name. My real name is Hana. So I would rate uh, four to both cover and title. And what about the book itself? Final rating of the book? Okay, final rating is a, a five. It was a very lighthearted, obviously dark. It has a dark content, but I love the book. I love Hannah and her experiences, so I would rate five. Okay, thank and you. And Robin had to leave. Okay, well, thanks for telling me that because, yeah, we, I mean, this isn't a podcast, so basically we're, we were talking to the author and then Robin left and there was no message on our chat window, so that's where the message is coming from. But that concludes today's book club. Thank you all. Thank you for joining us. Our next episode is also going to be a book club episode. We are going to be doing The Street by Anne Petrie. Look out for that one. That one's going to be really good. And that's all I have for this time. Before I go, if you loved this episode or any of my previous episodes, please take a moment to write me a review on Apple Podcasts. Please share this podcast with your family and friends and through your social media channels. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram on Living a Life Through Books. I'm also on Clubhouse. Look me up by name. I'm on TikTok. My tag is at Dr. Shnaz Ahmed. But I think the page is called Living a Life Through Books. I'm still new to TikTok and still navigating the waters there. My tag on Swell is at Bookish Podcast. It's a different kind of audio app. But it's still a good way to reach me. You can reach me through email. My address is livingalifethroughbooks at gmail.com. My website is shanazahmed.com. That is S-H-A-H-N-A-Z-A-H-M-E-D.com. The opening and closing music to this and all my previous episodes was composed by my husband, Brad Slavic. I'm Dr. Shanaz Ahmed with Living a Life Through Books signing off. Remember to water the seeds within you. It's time.